I'm April and I'm Steph and you're listening to The Thirst, a podcast that looks at the latest in pop culture as well as dissecting some very important topics of our choosing. It's January 2024 and we're here with Under Review, an opportunity for us to talk about 2023 releases in film, TV and music that have piqued our interest. For this edition we'll be recapping our favourite films, TV, music and books of the last year. Some have already been mentioned in our mid-year roundup back in July 2023, so we won't necessarily be doing a deep dive into them, but it's a nice opportunity to look back on the highs of pop culture from the past 12 months. These discussions will be spoiler-free, so feel free to listen all the way through, even if we mention some titles that you haven't experienced yet. Hello. Hello. Nice to see you. Wait, I can't see you at all. What am I talking Mm, about? I can hear you, though. Nice to hear you over the sound waves. You're not that far away from me, really, geographically, are you? Down so. the road. Just up the road. Just up the road. We all right? Uh, yep, fine. You? Yes, fine. We haven't done this in a while. I know, feeling rusty. Yeah, a little bit rusty. It, another classic of those, uh, I think we've said before, when we've had gaps, we've been like, ah, sorry, life life gets in the way. Life sort of imploded for me, so it's been a rough, it's been a bumpy few few months, but it's nice to be, nice to be back. Nice to be back, nice to be making lists, nice to be thinking about some of the varying pieces of pop culture we did enjoy in 2023 when things weren't so strange and sad. So yeah, we're just going to be recapping our best ofs. Like you said in the intro, some things we will have definitely discussed in previous episodes of the podcast, so we will be signposting to those where required. We shan't repeat ourselves too we much. We shan't be monologuing at length about the things we've already monologued about. Instead, we all should be monologuing about other things. New things. New and exciting things. So shall we start with our top films of 2023, which, to be honest, is always the thing that we're we're really keen to recap on. And I feel like we both watched, we watched quite a lot of films this year. We did, yeah. I reached my personal target of watching 100 things that were new to me. That's not 100 2023 releases. That would be probably impossible and would mean I'd have to watch Absolute Dross. But um, watched a lot of films, watched a lot of good films, I think. I I found putting together my lists quite tough, if only because I was sort of surprised that there were a lot of things that I enjoyed more than I perhaps thought I had done. Yes, for sure. I think there were films that lingered with me that I did not expect to enjoy as much as I did. And then a few sort of four out of five like quite a few four out of five stars mm. as well so the the sort of honorable mentions list was a lot longer than usual yeah i found it quite hard to be ruthless this year last year um 2022 i i think i found it a lot easier to be like no i'm just doing a top 20 and that will be it but there was such a as we'll come on to there was such a like huge load of films that i kind of felt like were all on a level for me pretty good year in film i'd say surprisingly good year in film so where should we start? Should we look at films that we both loved, um, some of which we have already reviewed earlier in the year? So this is a bit of a short recap. 
Yes. So let's come over some of the things that we have already covered. So something that I absolutely adored and unsurprisingly, if you heard me talk about it during our mid-year roundup, was uh, Todd Field's Tar, starring Kate Blanchett and Nina Hoss, set in the international world of Western classical music. Um, and the film centres on Lydia Tarr, who's widely considered to be one of the greatest living composer, conductors and the very first female director of a major German orchestra. Um, we actually saw this back in January of 2023. It's quite contentious because depending on where you live, it's worth saying as well, just to reiterate everything that we'll be covering, I think to my knowledge has a UK release date. So if you are listening to this and going like, why are you banging on about Tar, which came out in 2022? Not for us, it didn't. Nope. But yeah, I absolutely adored Tar. Um, as I think I mentioned on our mid-year episode, I had two very good viewing experiences of this particular film. I saw it with you in the cinema right at the start of last year. And then I also saw it when I was on holiday in Berlin on my birthday, no less. So yes, just an absolutely fascinating film. Todd Field's just an interesting director and I adore Kate Blanchett. So yeah, yeah, absolutely loved it. Her performance in this is completely it, it's so intense but so, so gripping intense. and it's kind of i don't know just dominating manipulative spellbinding all of those things it's uh it's definitely up there with the year's best performances absolutely something that we also reviewed uh, earlier in the year that i think we were both probably not expecting to enjoy as much as we did no, was no. uh the fable moons directed by um steven spielberg And this is a kind of semi-autobiographical film based on his early career and his time as a a young man and a teenager and sort of his growing love of filmmaking over those younger years. Um, I can't believe how compelled we were by this. I did not expect to find it so deeply personal and touching and kind of warm and funny. Just a great combination of sort of family drama uh, as well as a celebration of making art, really. Um, Isn't it funny how we were absolutely won over by it? Yeah, I just, I thought, well, you know, Michelle Williams, Paul Dano, it's, it's Spielberg, so it's worth seeing. Uh, and then just, it stayed with me throughout the year. And it was it was definitely one of the films that gave me the kind of warm fuzzies the most over the past 12 months. And of course, you had David Lynch as John Ford. Epic. What what a cameo, honestly. A wonderful time. Didn't he get paid in Cheez Its or something? Is that what he said the other? It was Cheetos, bags of Cheetos. Yeah, so fair enough. Just wouldn't expect anything less. Absolutely not. Um, Something else we covered, in fact, in our last episode that we published was, of course, Oppenheimer, directed by Christopher Nolan. Um, So it's based on the biography American Prometheus. It's, of course, about J. Robert Oppenheimer, the uh, father of the atomic bomb. Um, It stars Killian Murphy, Emily Blunt, Matt Damon, Robert Downey Jr. and many, many others. Um, We did obviously discuss this at length on our Barbenheimer episode in the summer, but I actually rewatched this at Christmas with my parents. Lovely. My dad expressed an interest in watching it and I was tearing my hair out trying to find something um, to watch over the holiday period when I was at home with my parents. And um, surprisingly, they both loved it. And I was really pleased to find that it's just as powerful after the first viewing. Mm. I didn't have a panic attack this time around, everyone. So that's good news. That's good. But... I don't know, Killian Murphy's performance in this is just phenomenal. The ensemble cast is just, you know... Brilliant. Brilliant, wonderful. And yeah, I think I was really surprised on second viewing actually how 
despite its runtime. The pacing is brilliant. I didn't feel bored. I think it really ramps up in such an interesting way, particularly when you think about how Oppenheimer himself then grapples with his guilt after the Trinity test. But yeah, what a phenomenal film and what a lovely summer experience it was. Yeah, it was very, very memorable. And I think I said before, was is probably my favourite Nolan film. I think it's mine as well now. Yeah, that... That level, the level of intricacy with the storytelling, the way it kind of moves from a very deeply personal story to something Mm -hmm. that's a lot more distant and kind of an almost objective point of view is just so sophisticated. Um, And as you say, career best performances from Killian Murphy and so many of the supporting cast. So I look forward to I'm going to revisit that again soon as well. Um, Lovely festive viewing for you and your parents, by the way. Yeah, wasn't it? And the other film, of course, we covered in our Barbenheimer episode was Barbie, directed by Greta Gerwig. It is the first live action Barbie film. It stars a huge ensemble cast, including Margot Robbie, Ryan Gosling, America Ferreira, Ariana Greenblatt, Will Ferrell and many others. This defied my expectations because I truly couldn't fathom how they were going to pull this off. And uh, as we said before, it was lightning in a bottle in so many ways, including the way it completely re-enthused the kind of the West's relationship to cinema. Who would have expected? I I keep thinking about like the Barbenheimer cultural phenomenon as such a weird but amazing thing to have experienced where like literal droves of people were like heading to movie theatres to do that back to back oh it was just it truly was a highlight of 2023 generally i think um and such a funny combination of those two films but i think we were both very happy with barbie we thought it did a really good job it was a lot of fun great to watch and sort of interrogates a huge Mm. pop culture figure from all sides so kind of the good and the bad so i don't think we found it perfect but for enjoyment factor it was really up there yeah really enjoyed it i will be actually quite interested to see how it holds up for another viewing i haven't actually managed to see it again since but it was just it was just i don't know fun and overwhelming and yes it's not perfect but wasn't everyone good in it that was a flipping good time And then before we head on to our kind of rankings and our other list, something else that we loved and haven't really viewed yet was Killers of the Flower Moon, which is, of course, directed and produced by Martin Scorsese and co-written by Scorsese with Eric Roth and based on the non-fiction book of the same name by David Gran. Stars an ensemble cast, including Leonardo DiCaprio, Lily Gladstone and Robert De Niro. And it's set in 1920s Oklahoma and focuses on a series of murders of Osage members and relations in the Osage nation after oil was discovered on tribal land um i was really anticipating this film coming out and um we've probably talked about martin scorsese offhand on a number of times on the podcast over the years but i was really intrigued to see how he adapted this particular book i didn't myself get a chance to read it ahead of the film coming out just didn't prioritize it which is slightly frustrating my end but obviously it's about native peoples um, and the osage nation Um, and martin scorsese himself obviously is not an osage director so it was obviously kind of something that you approach with intrigue but slight apprehension and i just found the entire experience of this film massively overwhelming it is long it's three and a half almost four hours it's a big one yeah (laughs) 
I mean, I just, I just, I loved it. The performances in it are absolutely brilliant. I'm really pleased that Lily Gladstone is now getting the attention that they deserve because they're someone that's popped up for me in some films by other directors, particularly Lily's worked with Kelly Reichardt, who I will actually come on to talk about later. Um, they're in a brilliant film called Certain Women, but they're just a phenomenal actor and they were just amazing in this film leo obviously did a good job robert de niro is particularly evil but the ensemble cast as well a lot of native actors and it looks gorgeous i don't know what an experience it was to see it it's just big in every way isn't it the yeah the runtime the themes the cast the score the cinematography it's like a proper proper epic yeah and like you i think the thing that stayed with me is lily gladstone's performance as molly although they don't get as much screen time as perhaps they deserve in some ways. Uh, Their body language is absolutely incredible and the sort of subsequent accolades and the way that they've spoken on the red carpet will be Mm -hmm. so meaningful to so many Indigenous people. All the performances, even the minor ones, are brilliant. Robbie Robertson's score, uh, which I believe is his final score, Mm -hmm. has stayed with me too. It's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, and... I think we, if we'd had the chance to have a longer conversation about this, I think we're both very aware, as you say, that this is a film that tells a story centred on the violence experienced by Indigenous people through the lens of a white American director. And, you know, it can't speak on behalf of those Indigenous people and their personal stories, and it it doesn't make up for what they have experienced. But I think it I think Scorsese does the best job he can of turning mm-hmm. like a very uncomfortable mirror on white American audiences in a way that is quite like responsible and self-aware. I don't think it's, I know there's been quite a lot of back and forth online about sort of DiCaprio and De Niro's characters, but for, I don't think they're sympathetic at all. I saw a quote this week from a, I think it must have been an Academy screening of the film recently where um, Scorsese was specifically asked about the ending of the film, which did garner a lot of discussion Mm. after it came out. Um, And I'll just quote here because I do think it's incredibly interesting to understand where he perceives his place to be as Mm. the director of this particular film. He said, all this tragedy ends up as a radio show for entertainment. And as I'm making the picture, I realise too, we're making entertainment. Therefore, the last words had to be spoken by me, taking on the culpability of being part of a culture that is complicit. Mm. So I do think that he has a degree of self-awareness and I find that slightly frustrating in a lot of the discourse that was flying around. Obviously, I can't speak from experience, so I'm not positioning myself that way. But I do think it's really interesting to sort of think about his own acknowledgement of the fact that the irony here is, of course, that he's making a film that is to an extent for entertainment as well. Yeah, and the very at the very least he can do is acknowledge and be aware of his place in that larger narrative. So... Um, yeah, I just I, like you. I think it was one of one of Scorsese's like well, one of the best films he's done in recent years for sure. Yeah, I felt that it's a long run time, so it is a bit of an event. Mm-hmm. But I do look forward to watching it again, and I'm so I'm just so pleased that we found it as impactful as we did. Yeah, me too. What a relief. <laughs> so, April, would you like to take us through your top ten ranked films of? 2023. Absolutely. Are we doing this 10 to 1 or should I do 1 to 10? Do 10 to 1. To give it a little bit of a some suspense, <laughs> some tension, some build up. Some suspense. I'm on the edge of my seat. 
Obviously, as we said off the bat, a lot of these may have appeared in our mid-year, so I won't dwell on some of the ones that I know definitely appeared. But um, my number 10 was Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret, directed by Kelly Freeman Craig and based on the Judy Bloom classic um, starring Abby Ryder, Fortson, Rachel McAdams, Kathy Bates and my favourite, Benny Safdie. I feel like we maybe did mention this on our mid-year list, but I didn't necessarily anticipate that one of my favourite films of last year would be a Judy Bloom adaptation much less a book that I'd not read since I was a teenager I didn't think I was going to go and see this I just thought well I'm I'm just not going to be interested and it was so good god it was just lovely and you know what those performances have really stayed with me I mean we saw this in May I think and I'm still thinking about Rachel McAdams's performance as the mum in the story Um, I think Benny Safdie is brilliant Kathy Bates as the grandmother and of course um, Abby Rowe Ryder Fortson as Margaret. It's just such a lovely film and the type of film I really do wish they made more of. Mm. So if you haven't had a chance to see this, I would really, really recommend seeking it out because it's just it's just delightful. You know what would be a very heartwarming double bill is that and the mm. Fablemans. Literally, wouldn't it? Both period pieces. Wish we'd done that and not the Fablemans and Babylon. Um, My number nine is How to Blow Up a Pipeline, which is directed by Daniel Goldharbour, which is loosely based on the 2021 non-fiction book of the same name by Andreas Malm. Um, I did mention this in my mid-year roundup, but for those uninformed, it's about a crew of environmental activists who plot a daring plan to disrupt an oil pipeline. Really, it does, as it says in the title, How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Um, Really nice little heist thriller. Um, Didn't really expect to, again, love this as much as I did, but it's a brilliant cast. Got Ariella Barra, Kristen Forseth, Lucas Gage, Sasa Lane and Forrest Goodluck. But it's just... uh, The way that it's put together is genuinely like an Ocean's Eleven style heist where you kind of get to know that the character's gang comes together and they're they're delivering this plan. And um, it stayed with me for a number of reasons, mostly because of the environmental aspect of it. Um, But it also doesn't outstay its runtime. I think it's like 90 minutes. I did feel slightly unwell multiple times throughout watching it just because it is really tense and stressful and anxiety inducing. But um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely brilliant. Um, my number eight is Barbie and my number seven is Fablemans. So we'll brush over those. Um, my number six is Asteroid City, directed by Wes Anderson. Again, as with every Wes Anderson film, it's an all-star ensemble cast. Jason Schwartzman, Scarlett Johansson, Tom Hanks, Tilda Swinton, Brian Cranston, Jake Lloyd, etc., etc. It's a very metatextual plot simultaneously depicting the events of Junior Stargazer Convention in like a retro-futuristic version of 1955, which is also being staged as a play. Um, I think I may have just seen this before we did our mid-year so I don't think I expanded on it too much because it was extreme recency bias but it's been really interesting seeing a lot of discussion about this particular film this year with a lot of people either absolutely loving it and thinking it of it as one of Anderson's best and a bit of a return to form which is how I perceive it or people absolutely slating it and I cannot remember which publication put it on its worst of 2023 list I have a feeling it might have been Hollywood Reporter but don't quote me on that absolutely baffling because I just think it's absolutely gorgeous so many brilliant 
performances in it as usual and just a genuine return to form for me for Wes Anderson that's not to say that I think he fell off but sometimes I think that perhaps the French Dispatch we enjoyed it but it was slightly too ambitious maybe didn't work for me as much as I wanted it to I think I got quite confused by the French Dispatch yeah I think it would have worked better and I think we said this when we discussed it with as the little vignettes I think Mm. if they kept it separate yeah some nice shorts but we did get Timmy with a little moustache so that was a good time My number five is Showing Up, directed by Kelly Reichardt, um, and this is her fourth collaboration with actress Michelle Williams. The film follows a sculptor managing the competing attentions of her art, her job, her family and her friendships in Portland, Oregon. As well as Michelle Williams, it also stars Hong Chow, John Magaro and Judd Hirsch, who ironically also stars with Michelle Williams in The Fablemans. So that's a bit of a nice reunion. The release of this has been absolutely bewildering in the UK in that it's not actually had a formal UK cinema release and I think is actually just going straight to DVD this month, Mm. which is insane. I also think it premiered at Cannes in 2022 and then has actually released in the US in 2023. So the scheduling of it. It's all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm, I think I've talked about Kelly Reichardt on the podcast before because her film First Cow was one of my favourites, I think, in 2021. Yeah. Um, she makes a lot of films that are set in the Pacific Northwest, which is where she is based. When I think about her films, I often think about our friend Vix, who has a real issue with books that are like no plot, all vibes. <laughs> yeah. And that is a really reductive way of describing Kelly Reichardt's films, but I often think that they are more of like a feeling For sure. that you want to be in than a, a film that has a very fixed narrative. Um, this film does have a narrative, but it's very much like going with the flow. Um, mm-hmm. But Michelle Williams is absolutely phenomenal. Her relationship with Hong Chao in this film as well is just such an, a fascinating dynamic. I think I wrote in my letterbox review of it that it's such an interesting depiction of what happens when you are an artist who isn't allowed or afforded the time in life to wholly pursue your art and what happens when you are trying to juggle lots of other things when really all you want to be doing is your art and does the art even make you happy? Mm. It's just brilliant. I mean, I knew that I would like it, but I didn't expect to just love it as much as I did. I honestly could have watched this film for like five hours. It was just so delightful. Josh watched it with me um, and it was his first Kelly Reichardt film. Mm. And I was slightly apprehensive that the no plot vibing aspect of her filmmaking would be off-putting, but he absolutely loved it as well. So if you are able to seek it out um, and see it at any time, it's just proves to me why Kelly Reichardt is one of the best and most criminally underrated filmmakers working in cinema at the moment. Um, my number four is Killers of the Flower Moon. My number three is Oppenheimer. My number two is something I definitely did mention on our mid-year roundup, but it's the All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, directed by Laura Portress, which is a documentary following the life of artist Nan Golden. And alongside that, it's about the downfall of the Sackler family, who are the pharmaceutical dynasty, um, who are greatly responsible for the opioid um, epidemic um, in the US and across the world and the unfathomable death toll that happened as a result. I was really overwhelmed by this. I am a huge Nan Golden fan. I love her photographs. I have been really fortunate I think uh, mid-year episode I mentioned that the times when I've been fortunate enough to see her work in galleries has just been really overwhelming she's just if you know what her work is like it's just phenomenal um and this was just a really interesting documentary about her but then also her experience of of 
opioid addiction and the impact it's had on her life and what that has driven her to do um, in terms of advocating against the Sackler family and the impact they've had on many families um, and individuals over the last few decades. It's really interesting, actually, because I saw another documentary recently that was called Tish, which is about a British photographer called Tish Merthyr, who photographed the working class and marginalised communities in the northeast of England in the 70s and 80s. And when I came out of seeing Tish, I immediately was thinking of the experience I had seeing All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. And these are two women in particular that have done a lot of work showcasing marginalised communities, particularly in photography and highlighting, you know, the things that people are experiencing in these various different communities obviously Nan Golden depicted a lot of the impact the AIDS crisis had on individuals in the United States Um, and again Tish Mercer was talking about like particularly the impact that the lack of money was happening in in the areas of Newcastle and yeah it was just like an interesting mental uh, pairing to make but they're just both really overwhelming all the beauty in the bloodshed was just i remember the film finished and i just sat and sobbed Mm. um for about 10 minutes afterwards because i was just completely overwhelmed by it um and yeah just lovely to have a documentary actually in my top 10 it doesn't usually happen so yeah that's brilliant um and then unsurprisingly my, my favorite film of 2023 was tar contentious i suppose Uh, in the sense that I know many people that do not like this film, but I have not stopped thinking about it since I saw it. And I just think it's fucking great. Um, So that's my not-so-whistle-stop tour through my top 10. Um, Please, can you share your ranking? Yes. Well, we always have a few different ones. And um, I've tried tried to shoehorn a couple of horrors in this year. It hasn't been my favourite year for horror films, I have to admit, but there have been a few... Um, a few memorable titles so uh, one film I talked about in our mid-year roundup was uh, Evil Dead Rise which I've put as my number 10 which is the fifth installment of the Evil Dead franchise directed by Lee Cronin with Sam Raimi in the chair as exec producer and it's about a woman who visits her older sister and her three kids in an LA apartment and the kids discover an old book in the building's basement which gives rise to flesh possessing demons of course (laughs) Uh, I watched this again on Halloween it is uh, suitably wicked and a very good time and is probably the horror film that I had the most fun with this year. We've had some very lacklustre sequels, requels, reimaginings uh, recently such as <clears throat> The Exorcist uh, and this is truly one of the only great ones. Uh, yes, so uh, number nine was Dream Scenario, which is something that you and I watched at the cinema together. We did. Written and directed by Christopher Borgley and produced by Ari Aster under the Square Peg banner. And it is the only Ari Aster that I'll be rating highly this year. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, it stars Nicolas Cage, Julianne Nicholson, Michael Cera and Tim Meadows, amongst others. And it's about a family man who finds his life turned upside down when millions of strangers suddenly start seeing him in their dreams. Uh, And this sort of newfound stardom, which is uh, working very well for him to begin with, soon turns into a nightmare and he's forced to navigate the consequences of this newfound stardom. This hasn't had a lot of write-up and I didn't, again, I didn't expect it to enjoy it as much as I did. It's a kind of satirical look at online viral content and cancel culture. And it's a dark comedy with some real real edges of 
of horror a couple of really freaky Mm. moments uh more of a nuanced performance from nick cage in some ways although he definitely still gets the opportunity to act freaky uh shows what a great actor he is with such tremendous range so yeah really enjoyed it number eight is barbie Number seven is uh, May-December, which has generated a lot of discussion, especially on social media this year. It's directed by Todd Haynes of Velvet Goldmine and Carol fame. Uh, It's from a screenplay written by Sammy Birch, and it's based on a story by Birch and Alex Mechanic, and it's loosely inspired by the Mary Kay Latorno scandal. It stars Natalie Portman, Julianne Moore and Charles Melton, Um, And it's about a married couple who, 20 years after their notorious tabloid romance, find themselves under pressure when a Hollywood actress meets them to do research for a film about their past. This, yeah, had loads and loads of conversation online about it. um, And I I went into it over Christmas, kind of not sure what to expect, but uh, it just has some fantastic performances from Charles Melton in particular who I would obviously rate from Riverdale but not many other people will have seen him in that so it's insane how good he is in this like insane he's brilliant he's brilliant so I'm really glad that he's getting yeah just so much recognition now it must be tremendous for him um this is just outside my top 10 um actually I was really surprised I think I was slightly skeptical actually when I went into this if only because i sort of had a vague awareness of the mary kay latano story for sure and was kind of slightly uneasy about how it would be depicted but i absolutely love julianne more i love when she works with todd haynes um this actually did ironically send me on like a todd haynes little weekender after um i saw it i rewatched specifically some of the todd haynes julianne moore films I am also uh, a bit 50-50 sometimes on Natalie Portman. Yeah, I think that's fair. I thought she was great in this. I think she plays a actress very well, which I think is a silly thing to say <laughs> she is an actress, but... It's a bit meta, isn't it? Might be hard to do. But yeah, Charles Melton is just mad in this. Like, it's... it's I, could, I can't believe he's in Riverdale. Afterwards, uh, I was discussing with Josh, like, what else he had been in. And, and I was like, he's literally been I in mean, Riverdale. I mean, it's just that. And he's... It's not even a... I mean, it's a... You know, it's a it's a pretty strong supporting role, but it's a supporting role nonetheless. It's not kind of up front and centre. So they'll all be kicking themselves that they didn't... Yeah. They didn't cast him sooner. So started life at Riverdale. Great time. Mad. Mad. Uh, My number six is Infinity Pool, which is definitely a film that we um, talked about earlier in the year. It's directed by Brandon Cronenberg and it stars Alexander Skarsgård, Cleopatra Coleman and Mia Goth. I had a blast watching this and partly because of um, where and when we watched it. We went to an evolution Mm -hmm. of horror screening in London. So I just really enjoyed the kind of atmosphere of watching this and the people that we spent our time with. But I also do love Brandon Cronenberg. He is my favourite Nepo baby. So (laughs) it's a polarising film, but I had a great time. It was suitably batshit, uncomfortable, shocking. There's some amazing use of practical effects in it. Um, Got to see Alexander Skarsgård in a dog collar. Uh, and Mia Goth putting That's on the most nice. yeah always nice and also Mia Goth putting on the most annoying whiny voice on the planet totally get why some people didn't enjoy it but it was a very memorable film for me 
I have thought a lot about her on on top of that car, just shouting his name in that that really whiny voice. Just a terrible depiction of British voices, I have to say. And she's English as well. Yeah, makes us sound awful. I'm sure we don't sound like that at all much. Uh, My number five is The Fablemans. My number four is Oppenheimer. My number three is Killers of the Flower Moon. So they're they're very similar to you, actually, in terms mm-hmm. of like slightly interchangeable ranking. Uh, my number two was Tar. Uh, and my number one, um, which is a film that I know you really enjoyed as well, was Passages, uh, oh. which is a French drama directed by Ira Sachs. It stars Franz Rogowski, Ben Wishaw and Adele Xarkopoulos who is also in The Five Devils, which is another good film that I saw this year. Um, And the story of a gay couple living in Paris, Thomas and Martin, whose relationship is thrown into crisis when Thomas begins a passionate affair with a woman. Um, I, I was looking forward to seeing this because there had been a lot of positive reaction to it with kind of early screenings, but... I was just absolutely enthralled. Couldn't believe how much I loved this. Um, From the first moment when you see Thomas kind of directing on set, he just has such an intense and magnetic presence, really. And I just found the whole film very intense, passionate, funny, uncomfortable, lots of dual feelings, I guess. And I couldn't... I couldn't get enough of the performances and this very messy love triangle and I wanted to see where they all ended up and I I felt so intensely for Agat too as a young woman who's kind of caught in this web of someone else who is so enticing um, and really kind of messes with her life and her emotions. The, the costuming stayed with me as well. That oh, was pretty amazing. Oh, it just looks amazing, doesn't it? And I feel like a love triangle between two men and a woman probably doesn't get explored as much on film. So no. um, I, I just thought it was really beautiful. I did really, really love this. I love Franz Rogowski. He's in several of the German director Christian Petzold's Mm. films. So that's where he first kind of came on my radar. He looks like a European Joaquin Phoenix. He's physically so striking. It's mad, isn't it? Physically striking, his eyes, he's gorgeous. The costuming for him was perfect. And yeah, he has this very, very hypnotic presence, I guess. Just so chaotic, absolute chaotic bisexual. The the drama in this, like living for the drama, is absolutely jarring to sort of... I mean, I have obviously over the years, I've watched Ben Whishaw in many, many things that are for grown-ups. But unfortunately now for him, he is rendered in my mind as Paddington. (laughs) Yes, yes, that's fair. Which is absolutely fine uh, until you have to sort of watch him engage in a very lovely sex scene with Franz Rogowski. I'm not complaining. Paddington Rail, Franz Rogowski. Um, good, good time. Um, yeah, I really like this. I really like Iris Sachs' films. And my favourite thing about watching this is that um, for some unknown reason, and I don't know why I'd convinced myself, I think I'd... I think I thought it was in Berlin mm. and then within about two seconds of the film starting I was like oh it's in Paris and that means that's it's absolutely meaningless but you know you just you've just sort of like gone in with a very set like oh this is going to be in Berlin what's a lovely thing to watch another film that's going to be yeah. set in Berlin and I was like oh it's Paris um nothing against Paris no I think I do get what you mean though and sort of based on the screen caps and everything that, that the limited kind of stuff I'd seen before I think I'd assumed it was and I know that Franz Rogowski is German so yeah like, oh, so you're great. like great a Berlin based film it did make me want to go to paris though which i I never feel like i want to go to paris for any reason so paris is pretty nice i could recommend the 
catacombs. <laughs> not slagging it off, just going, you know, it just made me want to visit. So Yeah, well, that's good. I also just had a flashback to the the sort of older people that left the cinema with us who were loudly complaining about how needless the sex scene was. Oh, yeah. And that it was, was funny, like, wasn't it? great. I mean, literally, like, take a shit on one of the best scenes of the film, my friends. I thought that sex scene was, like, genuinely very powerful. Oh, well. so it's, good. It's not like a lot of films where you're just like, why have you thrown in some shagging? Paul Schrader, I am looking at you. How could you possibly complain in this instance? <laughs> exactly. Great, it's great lovely. sex rendered on film. Um, shall we do our honourable mention? I think we should, yes. Um, so a sort of elephant in the room actually that I didn't address when I did my ranking is that actually for me my favourite cinema going experience of 2023 which sort of is 2023 release was seeing the A24 remastered version of Jonathan Demme's Stop Making Sense of course which is the 1984 Talking Heads concert film um, I actually when I did my ranking I put it at number one but I took it out because I looked at everyone else's list and nobody else had bothered so I was like well out that comes um but if i had been true to myself that would have been my number one anyway as we sort of said briefly when i did my ranking um i found that my like 11 to 20 was essentially all four star films Mm -hmm. um and i found it really hard to jostle these into any kind of ranked order as i enjoyed them all very similarly um so these are some things that i think are very much worth checking out passages you've just covered i saw a fire which is uh directed by christian petzold Another, actually, drama-filled film, uh, so you actually might quite like this, um, are a film that's been getting a lot of sort of awards chatter recently is Anatomy of a Fall, directed by Justin Triette. Um, I loved May, December as well. Uh, I saw a Belgian film called Close, directed by Lucas Dont, which I think I mentioned in our mid-year, about a relationship between two teenage boys. Um, Return to Soul, directed by David Cho. Master Gardener, I know we definitely talked about, directed by my favourite Paul Schrader. Absolutely loved Rye Lane, directed by Rain Alan Miller. And Talk To Me was something that we saw at the cinema together. One of my probably best horror in the cinema experiences I've had in ages. That's directed by Michael and Danny Filippo. And then there are a whole load I missed out, but two that I will shout out in particular are Scrapper, which has a brilliant Harris Dickinson performance in it. Um, And I am going to mention that we... I did see Past Lives. Didn't land for me as much as I wanted it to. Sorry, everyone. Um, I also think that Wonka is not bad either. So there we go. Wonka was a good time. Yeah. What were some of your honourables, please? So uh, I will notably mention The Eternal Daughter, which is cheating because it was in my 2022 list because I'd snuck a watch of it after it was shown at London Film Festival. But actually it came out at the cinema this year and we Mm -hmm. went and saw it so I got to see it again and I really love that film so shout out to Eternal Daughter again um, which is Joanna Hogg. All the Beauty and the Bloodshed as you mentioned is probably the best documentary I watched this year Anatomy of a Fall Are You There God It's Me Margaret The Boogeyman which is uh, adapted from a Stephen King short story Um, How to Have Sex uh, which we watched together at the end of the year uh, Husera, The Bone Woman, Master Gardener, Past Lives, which I would also probably give a solid three and a half, four stars. Uh, mm-hmm. Rye Lane, Sick of Myself, which I believe you spoke about in your mid-year review back yep. in July. Skeena Marink, which is very, very polarising as <laughs> a film, but I think is a fascinating experiment. Thanksgiving, which is the only time I'm ever going to shout out an Eli Roth film. 
When Evil Lurks, which is probably the nastiest film I've seen this year, except from um, Talk To Me, which is also extremely evil. Uh, and Wonka, because Timmy Hive, Unite. I've listened to that soundtrack multiple times. Who knew he had such a beautiful voice? What a wonderful voice. Of an boy. Angel. It's probably worth also just pointing out very quickly that there's a number of films, as always, that have not come out yet for us. Oh, God. Uh, in, in 2023. So everything from Priscilla to Poor Things, The Holdovers, The Iron Claw, those are all coming out for us in 2024, when I'm sure we'll get to have a chat about them. My Kingdom for a screening of The Iron Claw. Right, should we have a chat about TV? Yes, please. Um, so I don't know how you feel. I've, I've, I feel like I've watched a lot of TV this year, but I've actually rewatched quite a lot. Me too. Yeah, I've rewatched loads. I barely watched anything new. It was really hard doing this list. Yeah, I'm, I'm on like season twelve of Supernatural. So truly, I've, I've what, I've watched a lot of Dean and Sam this year. That's been my big rewatch. But um, so let's start with uh, a couple of shows that we both loved and reviewed earlier in our mid-year roundup. The biggest of those is, of course, probably Succession, which had its fourth and final season air um, in 2023. Um, It's, of course, the Jesse Armstrong created show centering on the Roy family and the siblings fight for control over Waystar Royco. Um, It aired in March, finished in May. I think we talked about it in our mid-year 10 episodes. What a final season. It's been really lovely to see lots of the cast winning awards in the last couple of weeks. I have obviously not made any secret of my love for this show and I was really sad to hear that it was going to only do a four season run. However, I actually think sometimes things just need to go out on a high and what a high it was. Perfect four season run. Perfect four season run. Will anything ever come that close to having four absolutely like 10 out of 10 seasons probably not but yes it's going to be interesting to see what shifts into my um succession number one slot when viewing television in the next year or so but yeah what what a hole it's going to leave i know it was the it was the event television that we dream of wasn't it coming together to watch each episode whatsapp groups uh, reactions on Twitter, having to mute every single word relating to this Stressful. show. Oh, just and just the most crippling, anxiety-inducing, hilarious, witty, heartbreaking piece of television we've seen in ages, and with an ending that was perfect. Perfect, genuinely perfect. We'll not hear a bad word said about it. Ten out of ten. No notes. Another show that we both talked about in our mid-year roundup was The Last of Us, um, the first season of The Last of Us. Um, it aired on HBO. And this is the post-apocalyptic zombie fungus smash hit with Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey. Um, just a good, good time, actually, for, you know, a I guess a, a, a subgenre of horror that we've heard and seen a lot of especially in the wake of covid so Mm -hmm. i went in pretty skeptical with no knowledge of the game really whatsoever and left having really enjoyed the storytelling and the relationship between joel and ellie so i think we sort of discussed how actually it was a a pretty refreshing take on a on a warm subgenre. Yes, definitely. Didn't expect that a TV show about zombies that wasn't The Walking Dead would hold my attention for as long as it did. And for something to be based on an admittedly beloved computer game. Sorry, calling it a computer game is going to get me loads of grief, I think. PC game. <laughs> PC game. Um, game is 
like I just I just didn't think that like a game adaptation would ever be good. And I know we spent a lot of time discussing that in our kind of a Last of Us centered episode. But yeah, I'm really intrigued to see what they do in future seasons. It's just been announced this week that Caitlin Deaver is joining the cast. Yes. Um, which I was pleased to see. Big fan of Caitlin Deaver. She's so great. yes. Yeah, I'm looking forward to season two. I think they can carry it for at least another season. It'll be a good time. Um so also some other TV that we both loved but we haven't had the chance to review yet. Um The Bear part two it's officially called part two by the way i'm not just being an idiot by calling it part two not season two um obviously aired on fx in the states and disney plus in the uk and the kind of premise is in the wake of discovering hidden cash we rejoin carmy and the rest of the crew at the original beef of chicago land as they navigate their planned restaurant rebrand and renovations oh i obviously and we discussed at length how much we loved the first season of the bear oh yes just a, a, f- a phenomenal cast um not just jeremy allen white the rest of them are just brilliant ao adibari ebon mas Bacharach, matty matteson which is always a, a funny thing to think about um i was really apprehensive about watching this second run of episodes i will be very transparent and say that i actually didn't finish it until over christmas because i reached episode five which was fishes and just stopped because i found it simply too much um i've had actually a couple of conversations with people recently about how it's just so anxiety inducing sometimes this show and you care about the characters so much that you're simply like i can't watch this um and i just couldn't i just couldn't do it so i sat and watched every other person i know finish it and obsess about it and want to talk about it and i was like yeah i haven't done it yet and i spent a very rainy day over christmas just re-watching the first half of the season and then finally finishing the back half and i will say that that episode five fishes into episode six forks which focuses solely on richie is one of the like best one best two one episodes two of television definitely of 2023 but maybe ever it so is i thought the same the character development in this show i think is just like second to none i had perhaps cruelly on my first initial watch of the first half really dismissed the claire element of it but actually on second great. watch, i actually think she's a really great character and i think it really leads to some very interesting things are explored with regards to Kami and his attitude towards relationships etc etc and um yeah just like fucking great television and you know oh what else can I say what other superlatives it's just brilliant I, I absolutely loved it and I'm really annoyed at myself that I stalled um because I could have just been re-watching it over and over again <laughs> like I did with season one I mean it they did such a good job of extending this beyond just like a one season miniseries which I almost yes anticipated it to be when I first started watching and then I thought oh second season how are you going to make it as tight as the first but somehow I think it's better I think it's better I genuinely think it's better yeah I think it's definitely like above and beyond first season which we obviously loved but I was yeah just really blown away by the whole thing really yeah I really like that you know in the first season we spend a lot of time looking back And then in this season, as we're watching the kind of development of Kami, his relationship with Claire, Sydney, Richie, you know, in particular, but the whole gang, they're kind of looking to the future and what's next and how they can, you know, renovate and paint and polish this restaurant, but also themselves instead of, you know, and how they also take what's happened to them in the past forward. Um, mm-hmm. And you mentioned Richie and the episode Forks. I mean, he's all he was such a compelling character to begin with, but I loved his development is such a standout performance this season. The editing is nuts. The soundtrack is great. Just, it's so sophisticated on every level. 
it's kind of hard to choose between this and Succession as the top show of the year. But I think yes, if you were looking objectively over like what is the best, you know, on a technical level and in terms of all of the elements coming together, what is the best TV of the year? It would be The Bear. Yeah, 100%. Another show that we watched together and really enjoyed was Fall of the House of Usher, which was on Netflix. It came out in October, just in time for Halloween. And it's an American Gothic horror drama series created by Mike Flanagan, who is someone that I've spoken about quite a lot on the podcast. And we both watched and really enjoyed Midnight Mass previously. Um, It's loosely based on various works by Edgar Allan Poe. And it also sort of adapts unrelated stories and characters from Poe's universe, as it were, into a single narrative, which stretches from 1953 to 2023. And it recounts both the rise to power of Roderick Usher, the powerful CEO of a corrupt pharmaceutical company, and his sister Madeline Usher, the firm's genius COO, and the events leading to the deaths of all six of Roderick's children. I had a lot of fun with this. I knew that I would, I mean, I was excited for it because I'm always excited for a Mike Flanagan show. It kind of occupies for me a middle ground in my ranking of his work. So it's not quite the heights of Hill House or Midnight Mass, but it's better than Blind Manor and The Midnight Club. So solid, probably three, three sitting in the middle. Um, It's much camper than previous miniseries that he's had. It feels a little bit like Succession mixed with American Horror Story. But I loved the performances and the literary homages to Poe and other gothic stories. Love so much of this cast, especially Kate Siegel and Mark Hamill, who just is such a joy in the role that he plays in this show. Mark Hamill was such a like genius addition to the the Mike Flanagan like roster. What a he's devilish so little good man! He's so good. It's really funny because I feel like his the voice he does in this is like really good at showing like why he's done so much voice work over the years. As a voice actor, it's just it's sick. It's, it's so great. Good. I really enjoyed this. I really enjoyed all of the like uh, Edgar Allan Poe Easter eggs. Mm. It was really funny, kind of being reminded of the Poe that I have read over the years particularly when I've been studying like the things I did remember the things I didn't remember there were so many like interesting nods to things even just by throwaway in throwaway ways like giving someone a specific name Mm. and stuff like that but um Kate Siegel as well I've only watched Midnight Mass that's my sole Mike Flanagan project that I've engaged with which I absolutely loved and I'm really glad that we watched together so I've only ever really seen her in that but she is so good in this like she has a bit more of a kind of I don't know it's a complete contrast to the role she played in Midnight Mass for sure but it's just so good we will have to watch Hill House together this year because yes please um, she's my standout in that show she's just brilliant I just love her and Mike Flanagan together as well they're such a power couple I really enjoyed during the writers strike and the actors strike um, she was very active on TikTok because she was so bored and had nothing to do um, and it was just such a joy getting these like random Kate Siegel videos like shoved into my For You page she's very very personable and very lovely yeah. and I just yeah I really really like her as a person and as you said it, it's really nice to see those post stories retold in a like a contemporary setting mm. um, that's very cool very clever it's a show that probably maybe doesn't have as much heart as it were as sort of Midnight Mass and Hill House no. or Blind Manor 
but it still has something to say about sort of greed and family and legacy. So there's enough in there to get sort of stuck in. It was quite an interesting pairing to Succession, actually, wasn't it? We kept saying that when we were watching it about like, you know, corrupt families who sort of like don't really like each other and um, have complicated relationships. And I think it definitely takes influence with Succession because I remember we watched the first episode. The score! And I was like frantically Googling like, did Nicholas Brattel score House of Usher? Oh yeah, such a nod to that. It's great. So purposeful, it was great. Well, do you want to do your rundown of your favourite TV shows this year then, now that we've covered a few that we both mutually enjoyed? Yes, of course. Um, So I will go 10 to 1. Actually, I've got 11. Oh, you're such a cheat. Yeah, if only because I spent a lot of time... So my 11 is MasterChef, which is absolutely preposterous. But considering I didn't feel like I actually engaged with a whole lot of new television this year, I got really into re-watching MasterChef in particular. I watched the most recent series. If you don't know what MasterChef is, it's the long-running BBC show hosted by John Tarode and Greg Wallace in which amateur chefs compete to be crowned the MasterChef winner. Um, just great television. I obviously have talked many times over the years about my fondness of food television programming. So this is just a really nice opportunity to watch people cook stuff that I probably would never eat, but it looks good and there's a slightly high octane element there. 10 is a slightly preposterous choice again but it's is it cake season two which is a netflix american game show style cooking competition hosted by mikey day who's usually found on saturday night live season one came out in 2022 and essentially contestants create cakes that replicate common objects in an effort to trick celebrity judges so it's basically is it cake i have seen this on social media because it's been talked about a lot and it does look like a lot of fun It's just kind of absurd because it's people making cake. I'm a big fan of cake, but it's cake that looks like other stuff. That's cool. People being fooled by whether that cake is real or not. I don't know. It's stupid. But you know, you just like, I just want to watch some reality TV show about food in which people are making cake. I did not finish Bake Off this year controversially. So this was my fill in. Number nine is Starstruck season three. I think I might have mentioned this in my mid-year roundup, but I've definitely mentioned the show over the years. Um, So it's the third part of Rose Matafeo's comedy drama, which focuses on Jessie, who's a New Zealander living in London, who after a one night stand, finds herself in a relationship with Tom Kapoor, who is an A-list actor in the show. Um, The series explores Jessie and Tom's relationship over the years as they break up, reunite, attempt to see other people. It was just a really nice third season. I think Rose Matafeo is absolutely brilliant. The writing on this is phenomenal. It's just like a nice little kind of will they, won't they rom-com show. The episodes are super short, 30 minutes. And it's just brilliant. Just absolutely wonderful. I started watching this a few months ago when um, I needed some like lighthearted company. And Mm -hmm. admittedly, I didn't finish it. And I wonder if it's because I just don't fancy Tom as like a a cool A-list actor. Like he's just, he's just so petite. I think I only fancy like Prince and Jeremy (laughs) Allen White as petite men. So I think maybe I didn't fancy him quite enough to be hooked in. Yeah, it's a stretch to imagine him as being as A-list as they kind of try and uh, position him to be in the show, but uh, real suspension of belief there. Yes, but something we all fantasise about, so... Exactly, and maybe it's a Tom Cruise type, who knows. 
My number eight is I Think You Should Leave Season 3, which is on Netflix, a sketch comedy series created by writer Tim Robinson, who also stars in the show. It's real absurdist comedies. Most of the sketches revolve around someone making like an embarrassing mistake in a social or professional setting and then having to deal with it and being stubborn and weird and creepy. And it's really kind of like cringe comedy, very surreal at times, a lot of subversion. I just love it. I think I think it's a real, like, you either love it or you hate it. I think think it often features a lot of other comedy or stand-up performers that I like which probably helps Connor O'Malley often appears big Connor O'Malley fan um, as an aside he has a special that came out this year called The Mask which is absolutely absurd Steph you would hate it because it's essentially him shouting for half an hour nope but yeah fucking love I think you should leave and Tim Robinson and I think I think we'd be good friends because he likes listening to Turnstile um, my number seven is How To with John Wilson season three this is an HBO show I think I mentioned season one and two in my 2022 roundup but it's this again it's the third and final season of this documentary kind of comedy series in which John Wilson attempts to give advice while dealing with his own personal issues the episodes are kind of framed as like tutorials and are filmed on the streets of New York and cover topics from small talk to scaffolding every episode kind of focuses on its title um so like there is an episode that's called how to improve your memory but it often takes an interesting or unpredictable or diverse direction so that episode in particular ends up featuring a conference on the mandala effect in ketchum idaho john wilson is such an interesting guy i think he looks like ryan gosling's tethered the editing on it is phenomenal because john wilson just walks around new york and films a lot of stuff and then when he's putting the episodes together he will just go back to his archive of footage and kind of cut things together it's a really interest interestingly constructed show for that reason but it all gets quite meta at the end of this season actually but if you kind of like i guess nathan fielder type stuff it's interesting in that sense but yeah i really love this and it's a real shame it's come to an end actually because i think it's something that could have just kept running and running and running but um definitely worth checking out um number six is the fall of the house of usher which is on Netflix, as we've sort of already alluded to, so I'll skip past that. Number five I mentioned in our mid-year roundup, which is Jury Duty, which was on Amazon and Freebie, which is about the inner workings of a jury trial in the US through the eyes of juror Ronald Gladden, um, who is unaware that his jury duty summons was not official and that everyone in the courtroom, aside from him, is an actor. I find it really funny that James Marston was nominated for a Golden Globe. For For himself? For playing himself. It was literally like James Marsden. James Marsden as James Marsden I mean and he's actually he has played so many good roles so yeah I mean great for him that he's you know receiving accolades now but imagine if he'd won it for playing himself that that would be such a gas my number four is The Last of Us season one which you've already mentioned my number three is Slow Horses season three however also I'm going to factor into that season one and two because I really caught up with it in 2023 um, it's on Apple TV it's a spy thriller television series based on the Slough House series of by Mick Heron and the show stars Gary Oldman and Jack Loudon so essentially Slough House is an administrative purgatory for MI5 service rejects who've bungled their job but have not been sacked um, they are then refer to as slow horses they're expected to endure kind of boring tasks a bit of a stick you in the cupboard forget about you type situation but they are often just constantly caught up investigating schemes that are endangering britain so they're dragged back in by the proper mi5 um i'm explaining it badly but it's so good i started it on a complete whim last year because i'd read a couple of interesting reviews about it particularly kind of talking about how 
how Gary Oldman has really leaned into playing Jackson Lamb, who's in charge of Slough House. The seasons are really, really short. The way they film it is back to back. So they're essentially adapting like one book per season. But like seasons one and two were filmed immediately back to back and they were released really quickly. So you have like six episode dump of season one. And then a few months later, you have season two come out, which is like optimum release schedule, actually, because you kind of get hyped and then you're like, oh, there's more. Yeah. And then season three came out at the end of November, I think. Um, And then I'm anticipating that season four is going to come out in April. But I don't know. I just love spy thriller stuff. I rewatched Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy before Christmas. And I just forgotten how much I love that. Also Gary Oldman related, I suppose. But yeah, just a TV show that I had like little to no expectation about other than like I'm bored and need to watch something. But it's really, really good. Isn't it always pleasant when that happens, though? such a treat honestly and my number two is succession season four and my number one is the bear but like you said the two of them are essentially interchangeable to be honest because they were both of my like most favorite and most anticipated television experiences a quick bonus is that another show i watched is um called joe Perra talks with you it is in no way 2023 um it was in from 2018 to 21 but there's an episode called joe Perra reads you the church announcement <laughs> where he recounts hearing The Who's song Baba O'Reilly for the first time. Mm. Um, And I have not stopped thinking about (laughs) it since I saw it. It's just stupid. Um, I also started The Curse before Christmas, um, but I haven't finished it. But that could be something that um, I end up finishing because it's Nathan Fielder, Benny Safdie, Emma Stone. What's not to love? Dream lineup. Um, Please share with me your, your rankings. Okay, so as I mentioned, I haven't... I feel like I haven't watched a lot that came out this year mainly because I've been re-watching such great titles as Supernatural, American Horror Story, and True Detective. So there you go. But what I have enjoyed includes, or has been, uh, Inside Number 9, Season 8, uh, on the BBC, which is a dark comedy anthology series created by Rhys Shearsmith and Steve Pemberton. I've dipped in and out of watching each season of Inside Number 9. I think I'm pretty much caught up, but I haven't often watched it all the way through as it's aired. And I really enjoyed doing that this year. Um, There was a Christmas, the first episode, which was kind of like a Christmas special, um, aired in December 2022, but the rest came out in 2023. A couple of highlights are... The, probably the Christmas special, The Bones of St. Nicholas, Love is a Stranger, which is kind of a play on the horror of online dating, and 3x3, Three Three, which is uh, it's a game show. And it I think it actually tricked a lot of people who were tuning in to the episode Cold just when it was being shown on TV and they thought it was a real game show uh, and it ends in a horrific way. So they had a lot of, I think they had a lot of complaints <laughs> to the BBC because people thought that this fictional game show was real. Um, it just goes to show it does, it's a show that does a great job of playing with the, the storytelling form, really. So I really enjoyed that. Um, I watched Murder at the End of the World uh, from FX, which played on Hulu and on Disney Plus in the UK. And this is a slow burn psychological thriller created by Britt Marling and Zai Backman-Ledge. It stars Emma Corrin as an amateur detective who attempts to solve a murder at an isolated Arctic retreat in Iceland. Uh, And the supporting cast includes Marling herself, Clive Owen and Harris Dickinson. So it's a kind of whodunit in the contemporary world of hackers and sort of true crime internet sleuths. I may have gone into this for Harris Dickinson, maybe. 
I've really enjoyed the way you can track social media, notably Twitter's obsession with certain people. So like earlier in the year, it was very much Pedro Pascal. Mm -hmm. And now we're getting this kind of little web of Harris Dickinson, uh, Paul Mescal, uh, Jacob Elordi, and who's the other one? There's Who's the fourth? There's someone really obvious. Who is it? God, who is it? Jeremy Allen White? Jeremy Allen White. Jeremy Allen White, Harris Dickinson, Jacob Elordi. Yeah, just all of... I mean, it might just be my algorithm, but it's there's just so much crossover content coming up between them and like fan accounts just for these people. But Harris Dickinson is really up there and I think this performance has probably um, done it for a lot of people. But I also really enjoyed Emma Corrin's subtle performance as Darby. It's a bit Kristen Stewart. Also, I quite fancy Clive Owen, so... I saw Clive Owen once in the flesh at a show at the Electric Ballroom in London and he is very handsome in real life. What show was it? Was Matt Berninger from the Nationals side project. Of course. Because he's really friendly with Matt Berninger, so there we go. Oh, handsome Clive Owen. Do quite Mm -hmm. like him. Um, Has a great setting too, sort of the isolated Arctic setting is great. Uh, I will admit I've got one episode left, but unless it is terrible... I've definitely enjoyed it as a kind of standalone atmospheric mystery. I just want to mention, you remember when we everyone was watching the OA? That was weird, wasn't it? Oh yeah, I forgot about the OA. I did watch yeah. the OA. Was there more than one season of the OA? Or did there was they... two seasons, maybe three. I... We watched the first one, enjoyed it, and then simply had no, no inclination. inclination to watch any more, which would probably no. be the same as Murder at the End of the World, but luckily I think it's a miniseries. My next choice is something that I mentioned in my mid-year review. It is Dead Ringers, which which is a miniseries on Amazon Prime based on the 1988 David Cronenberg film of the same name. But it kind of turns the setup of the original film on its head. So you've got twin female leads and it turns the focus of the body horror fully onto pregnancy and the female body. It's a funny show. It's quite painful to watch in parts. Um, shocking is very odd it's, it strikes a very odd tone it's quite darkly funny but I imagine it's not everyone's cup of tea however the double performance by Rachel Weiss is fantastic so yeah go back to that mid-year roundup if you want to hear more about that I watched From Season 2 from Epics, which was also on Now TV in the UK, which is a horror series billed as From the Makers of Lost, about mm-hmm. a town in America that traps everyone who enters it and is terrorised by monsters in the night. This is another show that I mentioned in my mid-year roundup. Season 1 was a really fun premise and I was completely hooked. It's very creepy, Stephen King-esque, quite a slow burn. Season 2 came out in 2023, definitely more ridiculous has the true lost effect so it isn't quite as strong but i'm still really enjoying it and i'm intrigued so it's it's hooked me enough to carry me into season three for sure poker face season one was peacock show a crime mystery of the week style series by ryan johnson i mentioned this as well in my mid-year roundup it stars natasha leon as charlie kale a casino worker on the run who entangles herself into several mysterious deaths of strangers along the way so it's essentially colombo in a modern setting very very fun a bit russian doll has got some fantastic guest appearances well worth a watch Uh, Fall of the House of Usher is up there as one of my favourite shows of the past year. Um, So really glad that we got to watch that together. Uh, The Last of Us season one for sure is up there. Taskmaster, as you mentioned before, um, I have been sort of 
jumping between watching Taskmaster from the very start, there are 16 seasons, and then also tuning into the newer episodes, including the sort of New Year and Christmas specials. During my past sort of four months of extreme sadness, bereavement, it has been such a huge comfort for me, especially during the early weeks when I simply couldn't place myself or nothing was comfortable. I just couldn't work out what I was doing with myself and I was in shock. So this was something that I put on and kind of watched back to back all the time and it was a real safe space for me. Um, And it really did give me some kind of emotional relief. It, It was one of the only things that distracted me actually and gave me a bit of respite from what I was feeling. So, and I'm someone who really doesn't like game shows very much. I love it. I love Taskmaster. I fucking love Taskmaster. It's so good. Who have been some of your favourites? Brief sidebar. I did really enjoy the season with Noel Fielding. Um, who else was on that season? Was Lolly. Lolly Edifope was in that season. That was a really, really, really good one. Um, I'm trying to remember now. I'm on to like season... I think I'm on season eight of my run through. Lovely. Okay. And then I've obviously watched some recent ones as well. Do you have any key favourite people? I'm a big fan of the season that has John Kearns and Fern Brady on it. Oh yes, yes. Um, That was really good. I sort of grew to like the Joe Brand season as well. Mm -hmm. There's just, there are so many. It's It's just so funny that it's like one of those things that like the minute you get into it, like you are set because there's so much of it that I, I mean I'd never really watched it until like a couple of years ago and then I immediately was like oh I love this and you can just go back and forth cherry picking based on like which comedians you know yes, which for ones sure. you like there's oh god the Daisy May Cooper mm-hmm. and Johnny Vegas series I I had never really I didn't really like Johnny Vegas particularly just had 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 too much of him culturally yeah for sure it's a real moment of time actually wasn't it Johnny Vegas the season that he's on is just like so hysterical he's very like, funny it's just so funny there's the ed gamble season the daro brin season he's also on the john kearns one it's just good like it's just so funny it's great and you could watch it over and over again and i think yeah. maybe i fancy greg davis do you yeah i think interesting. i do interesting i do often think about how he says little alex horn, little alex horn. All, the time. all the time it's just so. a great camaraderie I'm between glad you've them fallen in love with it yeah yeah for sure it's been a great time for me and then of course my top two of the year are the bear part two and succession season four love that for us wonderful and can I just quickly say how much I'm looking forward to True Detective, <laughs> which is something I didn't expect to say again. Um, I rewatched Isn't season, yeah, I rewatched season one recently. It's so fucking good. Ugh. But I can't believe that tweet that was questioning why people fancy Woody Harrelson. It's like, what are you talking about? The man has absolute BDE. That entire season of the first season of True Detective with him and Matthew McConaughey is just like, I think we were both just like beside ourselves every week couldn't handle it and it's just phenomenal so i'm really hoping that season four will be like a return to form with jodie foster that will be exciting shall we do a little music recap yes please so there are a few things that we both loved and that we have touched upon and reviewed earlier in the year the first and probably most obvious is uh, boy genius the record the first proper full length for the band that consists of julian baker phoebe bridges and lucy dacus um their self-titled ep came out in 2018 so it was really nice to finally have a full album i feel like we did talk about this at length in a previous episode but since that we did get the opportunity to go and see them in august 
breakfast in Gunnersbury Park and what just what a nice time that was. That was I mean I didn't go to a lot of shows last year for varying reasons but that was easily one of my favorites because it was just such a great lineup and a good time and just so lovely to see them live just so great live and such a nice uh just a nice like i don't want to say community experience because that sounds properly cringe but it was just like so nice just being in this field good crowd. in the summer good crowd limited you know. assholes i'd say yeah i think so um so that was great and yeah it's a it's a record that i've listened to so regularly oh yeah especially in the summer but actually also in the more difficult winter months it's provided me again with a lot of comfort which has been lovely uh, another record that you mentioned in your mid-year roundup that I hadn't listened to at the time because I didn't realise it was even out is Chain of Flowers's second full-length uh, Never Ending Space. So their first came out in 2015, I think. Yeah, it's mad. And I yeah. had not... Do you know, I honestly had forgotten this band existed. It's really funny, isn't it? Yeah. I did the same thing. And the, it's a record that sort of first began materialising during the pandemic um when the band had relocated from cardiff to london just a great record just really really good i'm really glad that you checked this out after i mentioned it because um it felt very up your alley when i listened to it and then on the sort of in parallel to that actually is a band that i think i was introduced to by yourself uh, so it's homefront and they released their full length debut album games of power um in 2023 they are a canadian i don't want to say post punk because i think that term gets used an awful lot on any band but i guess they are kind of post punk but it is wavy. so it's a follow up to their 2021 ep which I think you definitely mentioned in your roundup of that year. Such an interesting band. They were definitely something that I knew that you liked and that you they were fully on your radar. And I definitely checked out that EP after you had suggested it and mentioned it. Um, but this full length, I think, is really, really brilliant. I think it is like stylistically all over the place in quite a good way. It because is. There are F- like there's one particular song that has the gang vocals in that reminds me of the Bouncing Souls. Mm. But then there are some that are like more new wavy. There are some that are like, you know, very post-punky but yeah it's just a really really great album i've come back to it time and time and again and yeah i know you enjoyed it too i did absolutely so shall we do our rankings yes i structured mine into two sections really um because there was a sort of a quite a funny delineation so i will start with what i've called the hardcore section because when i actually went back through and did a list there were quite a few like I don't know. I don't want to say alternative because that's just like... Is this your cool alternative section? No, it's not even it, is it? It's just like subculture freak section. <laughs> that's what I could have, should have called it. Um, uh. So there were like four records in particular that I kept coming back to in 2023. Angel Dust's fifth studio album, Brand New Soul. Um, they're a band formed in Baltimore, Maryland, and they are made up of members or have been made up of members over the years of bands like Turnstile and Trapped Under Ice. I had completely forgotten about Angel Dust's existence until they released this album and I did also see them play in our first city in September and they were very very good live but yeah just kind of I think that's kind of filling the like turnstile hole I've had this year but that's a very fun one um Military Guns Life Under the Gun I feel like I may have mentioned them in the past but they're an LA based melodic hardcore band this is their first studio album after releasing two EPs in 2021 um, I've caught them live a couple of times. Um, I don't love this album as much as I like those EPs, but um, I think it's a really interesting development of their sound. And everyone loves them at the moment and they seem to be everywhere, which is always nice to see. Mm. Um, I really liked Death Is Nothing To Us, which is the third studio album by a band called Fiddlehead and is the follow-up to 2021's Between The Richness, which I adored. Um, the band's lineup consists of a whole variety of people from varying hardcore bands, including Pat Flynn, 
Goldman from Half Heart, um, Alex Henry from Basement. Wow. This is really, really great. I was a really big Half Heart fan and I did see Fiddlehead live finally in 2022. So I was really anticipating this album greatly and it's just an absolute banger. And then I think the one I loved out of all of those is Only Constant, which is a debut LP by a band called Gel. They've released two EPs in the past, one in 2018 and one in 2021. Um, they're a hardcore punk band from New Jersey. They remind me a lot of Trash Talk, which is mm. probably a reductive way of describing them. But I feel like if you listened to them, you would go like, I'd be yes, like, that, oh, like yes. Trash Talk. that makes me want um, to listen to them as well. Absolutely my kind of shit. It's very, very heavy, very, very fast. So obviously because it's a punk band, it's super, super short LP, but um, just something that I hadn't really checked out until I think it, I think randomly one of their songs came up on a playlist for me and because I, I didn't realise I had a full length out but I've seen it touted as on a lot of people's best of lists for the year which I think is always a good sign and then the rest of my top 10 is number 7 is Homefront Games of Power which you've already mentioned and then number 6 Chain of Flowers Never Ending Space um, number 5 is Javelin which is the 10th studio album by one of my favourites Sufjan Stevens as everything does with Sufjan, this seemed to come from nowhere as a real big surprise in October, particularly because in the summer he'd announced that he'd been unwell, suffering with Guillain-Barre syndrome. Yeah. And then he also announced that this particular album was dedicated to the memory of his partner, Evans Richardson, um, who'd died in the April of 2023. Um, Stevens' dedication of Javelin to Richardson was the first time that Stevens had publicly discussed his sexuality, mm. despite so much speculation over the years so it's just mad that you know there's always been discussion about whether or not uh, Sufjan is queer or mm. not but for him to sort of outwardly say this and then also be like oh by the way this album is actually dedicated to the loss of my lover was just you know mad devastating yeah it's a very emotive album as many of his albums are it's very beautiful um and i was just was really pleased to have another year with a sufjan stevens album to listen to um my number four is the land is inhospitable and so are we which is the seventh studio album from mitski and the follow-up to last year's laurel hell which i know we loved a lot um always lovely to have another mitski album in such quick succession felt like it came out of nowhere absolutely and it yeah just a gorgeous record uh, my number three is paramours this is why um which is their first album since after laughter came out in 2017 which is six years ago which is kind of insane i think we both mentioned this in our mid-year roundup did. but didn't necessarily expect to have a paramore album um so high on my ranking this year but why not super catchy so catchy my number two is again it's a bit of a two-header but i think i'm allowed but um the national my favorite band in the entire world um released two albums last year lucky me the first is called first two pages of frankenstein which was released in april um, and the second is laugh track which was released in september both of the albums are follow-ups to 2019's i am easy to find and feature a variety of guest appearances from again lots of my favorites including sufjan stevens phoebe bridges boniver taylor swift just absolutely delightful to have two albums by The National in the same year. I did catch them live last year as well in September. I will say that of the two albums, I very much prefer Laugh Track in a way that's actually quite funny to look when I look at my like Last FM statistics and I see that I've absolutely rinsed that and listened to the other one significantly less. But hey ho, can't complain. And then my number one is obviously Boy Genius, the record. Just phenomenal. I've spent so much time with that this year. I think you basically described it so accurately in that like it's a, a really good summer album but then it's also very good for the winter months when things might not be feeling so great so 
Yeah, we're a broken record for the record. I will rattle through my my list as well. Although I'm suddenly realising I thought it had 10, but maybe I've only accidentally put nine, but I should have put 10 because there's notable mentions. But fine, I'll rattle through it anyway. Um, my top nine begins with number nine is model actress, Dog's Body. Uh, model actress are based out of New York, I think, and have been around for a while, but they are new to me. Their sound is kind of a blend of, again, don't want to say post-punk, but post-punk, industrial, noise rock, sort of a bit of Nine Inch Nails mixed with Daughters kind of vibe. Um, I've really enjoyed that. Uh, Number eight is Homefront, Games of Power, which we have both really enjoyed. Number seven is Chain of Flowers, Never Ending Space. So thank you once again for reminding me that that band exists and that they had a new record (laughs) out. Number six is Fever Ray, Radical Romantics. Um, This is an album that I spoke about in our mid-year roundup. It's the third studio album by the Swedish musician. I think I mentioned before that I wanted to listen to this because I heard it had contributions from Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. So um, I gave it a listen and I really, really enjoyed it as a kind of weird synth pop album with industrial undertones. I've realised that you had your like hardcore section. I should have just had like post-punk section. (laughs) Um, Reminds me of the year that I basically just listened to like loads of female-fronted grunge music and now it's lots of male bands uh it's actually a lot of men in this i'm really sorry number five is eve tumor which i i cannot believe i'm listing in my it's so funny oh it's just so funny so um praise a lord who choose but which does not consume brackets or simply hot between worlds such a wanky title (laughs) this is their fifth studio album and i have not enjoyed eve's tumor um eve tumor's previous outputs i will have to listen to them again but in 2022 when i went to see nine inch nails and eve tumor supported them i it honestly was i i hated their set i thought it was awful i hated it i did not like their music so i cannot believe how much i like this it's like a hate listen gone completely wrong one of the reasons it might work so well is that they worked with Alan Mulder, who is a big name in music and has mixed a lot, a lot of amazing records, sort of ranging, like working from bands like The Cure, My Bloody Valentine, Jesus and Mary Chain, Interpol, Nine Inch Nails, just like loads and loads and loads. So, I th- And I think you can tell that there's kind of elements of post-punk, shoegaze, industrial, experimental sounds but it comes together so much better and makes so much sense than their previous work um i think i am not a music nerd really but i think if you are a self-professed music nerd um you will have a field day spotting all of the samples in this record because there are so Mm -hmm. many that are used and there's a pitchfork review that sort of mentions prints in terms of scale and sound and i can kind of see that as well so it's actually a really really good record and i cannot believe that i still don't know if i could bring myself to see them live yet because oh just not sure but yeah this is a really really good record uh my number four is body maintenance beside you um body maintenance are a band from melbourne and this is the first full-length lp um i was put onto this band by our friend benjamin who was playing the record in his shop which wes heard who went oh this is like cure-esque post-punk i am going to recommend this to steph 
and I absolutely loved it. It's very, it's dark and atmospheric. It's perfect for the colder seasons. So I would definitely recommend checking out Body Maintenance. Then complete swivel, as you do. Just really enjoyed sandwiching this between um, two very different bands. Uh, I've put number three as Olivia Rodrigo. Guts. Incredible. Incredible. Where to begin? My love of, my appreciation of Olivia Rodrigo is well documented. And I just think this is a really fun record. We talked about her first album, which drew a lot of comparisons to Paramore and a lot of criticisms. And then this one's, I've seen comparisons to the likes of Hole, which is so funny because Courtney Love was so vocally critical of Olivia Rodrigo. So Mm. um, ironic. It's just more pop punk with a kind of emphasis on the punk, sort of fun lyrics that speak to quite a specific generation and age bracket. But I think the sound probably has much wider appeal. It's just fun. My preference always is for the sort of louder, more energised songs over the ballads. But bless her, I just think she's adorable. And I don't care who knows it. Um, My number two is an album that I mentioned in our mid-year roundup because I had just been... I just like two days before found out that they had a new record um, from our friend Mark and I was annoyed that I hadn't listened to it yet and that is Soft Kill's Metal World Peace. Soft Kill are a band from Portland who have a pretty regular output and they have a real cross-genre appeal so I can see like a lot of punk kids and metal kids really enjoying their stuff as well as sort of more of a goth crowd. This record feels like very much like Soft Kill but with a twist so It plays with more samples. There's like hip hop samples in there. There's a lot of collaborations. It feels a bit more like they're experimenting with their sound. It's just solid record and Tobias Grave has a beautiful voice. And then my number one, of course, is Boy Genius, the record. Of course. Of course. Did you have any notable mentions that you wanted to shout out? Yes, a few honourable mentions. Um, Green Chatton from Fontaine's DC released his solo record this year that was called Chaos for the Fly. Um, I love Green's voice. And this was sort of a nice companion to Fontaine's DC, a bit more acoustic-y, very much a solo endeavour, but beautiful nonetheless. Paint It Black, who are one of my favourite hardcore bands, released their album Famine. I can't remember how long it's been since they released an LP, but it's quite some time, let me tell you. And I think it's a full length, but it's probably about 25 minutes long, which is like absolutely classic. Um, I really like Spiritual Cramps' self-titled LP. One I definitely mentioned in our mid-year roundup was Squid's O Monolith. Mm. I hilariously was very into The Hives, The Death of Randy Fitzsimmons. I forgot The Hives for a band. Yeah, it's a fucking good album, Steph. Oh, let me tell you that. Nice. If anyone could hook me up with tickets to their show in uh, in our city in April, please oh, get in no, touch. Did you miss that? It's sold out. It's sold out so quickly. It's stupid. Romy from the XX released an album called Mid Air, which is very kind of XX adjacent, dancey kind of club songs. It's really, really good. Um, and then I very much enjoyed two scores and soundtracks last year, which were the Barbie soundtrack and the Oppenheimer score by Ludwig Göransson. Um, there are also a handful of random pop songs that I loved uh, last year as well, which I'll quickly rattle through because they really have occupied a very specific space in my brain. The Welcome to My Island remix that George from 1970 did of Caroline Polyacek's song with Charlie XCX mm-hmm. on it is I've listened to it relentlessly it's it's stupid Speed Drive which is Charlie's song for the Barbie soundtrack absolute banger um, Houdini by our beloved Dua Lipa I'm hyped for a Dua Lipa album in 2024 let me tell you this I'm so excited I can't contain myself Houdini is 
fucking brilliant. Such a like disco banger. Like fuck yeah. Um, bad idea, right? By your Olivia Rodrigo. I just had it in my head for about two yeah. weeks and it was driving me insane. So it must be a good sign. And uh, Rush by Troy Sivan as well. What about you? I will, a handful of notable mentions, some of which you have already mentioned. I really liked Ritual Howe's uh, Virtual Falters. I enjoyed Mitski, The Land is Inhospitable and So Are We, as you mentioned. Um, you mentioned Troy Savan just then. I have very much enjoyed Something to Give Each Other. Paramore, This Is Why, which I also had um, highlighted in my mid-year roundup back in July. And also Drab Majesty, An Object in Motion, because Drab Majesty are one of my favourite bands, although this is not my favourite record from them. And finally, we shall recap some of our favourite books of 2023, both a mix of books that have been published in that year and also some older publications. I think we have both struggled a bit with reading in 2023. From September onwards, I have barely read anything, I must admit. Um, and I know you struggled a bit as well. So I'm, But I'm interested to hear what you have enjoyed. Yeah, it's definitely been a nightmare. It was a nightmare in 2023. I feel like I really struggled to gel with anything. And I also just didn't have the drive to read, which, as you will be able to empathise with, it's just really annoying when you are someone that like likes reading and wants to be reading. Um, To just have like notch the brain space for it. Just really not the headspace, yeah. No. Um, Something that we did both enjoy that came out in 2023, that we sung its praises back in July was uh, Shy by Max Porter. So just yes. another shout out that everyone should go and read Shy. It's um, it's very beautifully written, sort of vulnerable, tender, haunting story of a young man called Shy who escapes a home for very disturbed young men and walks into the night. So please, please, please go and read that. Yes, definitely. Absolutely loved it. Love Max Porter. Just lovely to have a new Max Porter book. Um, Something else we definitely talked about was Penance by Eliza Clark, um, which is her second novel after Boy Parts, which is presented as like a non-fiction a depiction of a murder that takes place in a fictional seaside town called Crow-on-Sea. And you were really sceptical about how I would enjoy this, I remember, because um, you read it ahead of me. Mm. But I think it's a really interestingly constructed novel that addresses kind of everyone's fascination with true crime and then what happens when that sort of people become consumed by it and I don't know I, I, it's, I really have been trying to encourage as many people as I can to read this because I was initially like oh yeah that was good not didn't love it we didn't think it was like you know mind-blowing but I've thought about it an awful lot and there have been a couple of like legal cases that have happened since I've read this where I've just gone like oh my god that's just like that's just reminding me of pen for sure it's very timely. in a way that's really unsettling yeah it's extremely timely particularly you know the impact that murders have on witnesses family members the killers themselves it's just yeah really really interesting um, and such a kind of contrast to boy parts actually yeah i think it's i prefer it more i think i like it more actually yeah definitely so shall we shall we share our lists yes um i have separated mine out into i did sort of a handful of actual 2023 releases and then i've done some non-2023 books that i've loved as well so i my favorite book of last year i will say off the bat was close to home by michael mcgee which i definitely mentioned in our mid-year um which is about a, a young man called sean who lives in belfast 
past and he returns home after finishing university and it's about how he navigates his family finding himself out of work um it's very much sort of looking at poverty love trauma through the lens of working class brothers in a post-conflict belfast it's absolutely wonderful the characterization in this is just glorious and just really really great writing and something that i has really stayed with me for the duration of the year in complete contrast i read julia fox's autobiography (laughs) down the drain if you are a fan of just going on the internet i think you will know who julia fox is um she's an actress artist model entrepreneur famous for captivating all of us in uncut gems um she's known for sort of dating Kanye West, how she uses social media, what she wears, how she presents herself in the world. Um, But she's just very unapologetic in being herself. And it was a really interesting insight into like her upbringing in New York, her life spent sort of flitting between the city and Italy where she was born and where her parents are from. Just I find her fascinating. So this was a really good insight into her life and was a really, really easy read as well. So it came sort of at a good time for me. Um, Another autobiography I read, which is completely different to uh, Julia Fox's book, <laughs> is Stay True by Hua Su, which is a an account of the life of an 18-year-old um, man called Hua Su um, and his relationship with a young man called Ken, um he meets when he goes to college hua is the son of taiwanese immigrants and ken is the son of japanese american parents hua like zine making frequenting bay area record shops whereas ken is very much in opposition to that but it's just an interesting kind of reflection back from adulthood about this very integral relationship that hua has and what happens when this person is no longer there and how you actually kind of think back about that relationship start to question whether things were true or not um it's just really really like lovely writing a really great coming of age story and Hua has been sort of working on this book for a number of years and it's just um yeah a really fascinating look at kind of searching for meaning and belonging um in the world mm. um of course loved shy by max porter um i really enjoyed brandon taylor's second novel the late americans which is about sort of set in iowa city and is about a loose circle of lovers and friends um, and the things they encounter and confront and provoke in one another over the course of a year each of the chapters is about a specific person but all of the stories are interlinked through those relationships um i just think brandon taylor's writing is absolutely gorgeous i think he's really good at capturing a sense of a community in a space i really loved his book real life so i'm really really pleased that i enjoyed that and I also, of course, loved Penance, which I've already mentioned, and then a couple of um, non-2023 books. Um, I mentioned already in our mid-year roundup, which, as you know, means Violence by Philippa Snow, which is a account of violence in popular culture in the 21st century. Absolutely fascinating read. Um, I really loved First Love by Gwendolyn Riley. I'd read My Phantoms in 2022, so it was great to go back and see some of Gwendolyn's previous work. Small Fires was a book by Rebecca May Johnson, which you had bought me, mm. um, which is about, uh, it's a memoir that kind of focuses on the kitchen and cooking and food um, as a source of knowledge and revelation really lovely food writing in particular i read an awful lot of annie i know last year and the happening in particular about her experience as a 23 year old in 1960s france um having to have an abortion 
Annie Ono won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2022 and it was lovely to understand why when I, by actually getting to experience her writing. And someone else whose work I read an awful lot of last year was Claire Keegan, who's an Irish short story writer. I've read Foster, which is a one-off short story and then a collection called So Late in the Day, but I also loved her novella Small Things Like These, um, which is... Uh, set in the build-up to Christmas in an Irish town in 1985 and focuses on a coal and timber merchant called Bill Furlong as he does the rounds and the people he encounters, particularly focusing on the complicit silence of people controlled by the church in Ireland at that time period. Interestingly, it's being made into a film with Killian Murphy, which is sort of interesting to think about. Mm. But Claire Keegan's writing, I found, is so accessible, but so powerful. And she really, her work really jump-started my reading journey um, at the end of last year. So uh, that was a real standout for me. What about you? A few of these books are um, titles that I've already mentioned in our mid-year roundup. Um, So for 2023 publications, I had mentioned Shy by Max Porter, Children of Paradise by Camilla Gridova, which is an odd but strangely familiar story of a young woman who gets a job in the Paradise, one of Edinburgh's oldest cinemas, and joins an oddball gang of staff. Wandering Souls by Cecile Pinn, which is a debut novel. Um, it's a short and powerful story of a family of Vietnamese refugees as they navigate their way through Thatcher's Britain. It's a story that I highly recommend that anyone reads. And then three books that I've read in the latter part of the year are This Is My Body Given For You by Heather Parry. Um, I spoke about Heather's debut novel, Orpheus Builds a Girl, last year. It was one of my favourites. And I really enjoyed this short story collection by her. It explores similar themes to Orpheus around kind of bodies, um, bodies that transform or mutate, that are kind of exploited or manipulated. It's it's a very dark collection, but there's also a playfulness to the form and the language and the tone that's used. So it, it experiments with the grotesque. And when I spoke to Heather for a different podcast, she um, said that she she thinks her writing leans more towards the grotesque than horror, um, which I think is really interesting. But this collection also really plays with that sort of fine line between horror and comedy. Uh, it ends on a choose-your-own-adventure story that I thought was very, very clever indeed and must have been impossible to write. Um, Another short story collection I really enjoyed is called Eyes, Guts, Throat, Bones by Moira Fowley. Um, It took me a little while to warm up to it. I think short stories are really a fine art and I wasn't so sure when I got started, but I then found it to be a great companion to Heather Parry's collection as well. But this one um, has more of a queer lens. It kind of feels like these stories are dark and delicious fairy tales some of which are really sinister. But it's also quite joyous and hopeful. There's a lot of emotion there, a lot of mixed emotions there. And it's another collection that really plays with form. And then uh, a a novel that I really enjoyed by Craig Russell is called The Devil's Playground. It's kind of a noir thriller set across two time periods. So it's set in 1927 and 1967. Um, So in 1927, a silent movie star is murdered, which kickstarts gossip that the production of this silent film called The Devil's Playground is cursed. And then in 1967, um, a film historian is searching for what is rumoured to be the only remaining copy of this cursed film. So very much reflects on the artifice and myth of Hollywood. And it's just a good time. And then a few older books that I've um, tried to catch up on this year 
here. They are all um, very well known. I would say they are all regarded as contemporary classics. So if you haven't read any of them, like me this is a call to to go back and read them because i thought actually i'm i spend you know previous years i've spent a lot of time getting enticed and pulled in by new books that are on the shelves and i haven't gone back and read a few titles that you know people have really talked about over the years and sung their praises so i wanted to go back and kind of experience those so one was the secret history by donna tart which is incredible a, yeah a very very well-known cult classic from the 90s which kind of feels like it started that whole dark academia obsession about a group of misfit students uh, at a new england college who you know bond together they find camaraderie with each other but they also draw a lot of influence from their classics professor um, and things go too far with this group and their ideas of morality are kind of changed forever so great characters thrilling story really enjoyed it um, another book that I know that you're a big fan of, April, is The Truth About the Harry Cuba Affair by Joel Dicker. Yes. I think you've mentioned this on the podcast before. Yes. Honestly thought this was fucking perfect until <laughs> I think the end fucked it. So mm. I was disappointed by the end. Um, it's a story about a famous author called Harry Cubert who is accused of murdering a teenage girl who went missing decades ago and whose body is found buried on his property. Real Twin Peaks vibes. Like I say, like four-fifths of this book I absolutely loved and thought it was one of my favourite books ever. Didn't love the end, so that was a little bit of a disappointment. However, I'm still super glad I read it. And then two more recent books that I... Um, one of which I, I worked through on audiobook is The Passage by Justin Cronin, um, which is the first in a trilogy that came out, uh, the first came out in 2010. It's a classic vampire zombie virus story set in an apocalyptic future. Truly epic ensemble storytelling. I love an ensemble story. You know, it has a lot of parallels to Stephen King's writing and The Stand in particular. I think I preferred it to The Stand maybe, which is hugely contentious because that's regarded as one of King's favourite books. But really, really liked The Passage by Justin Cronin. Um, and then finally, I am I haven't finished reading this book. Um, but I am very much enjoying it. It is Ghost Story by Peter Straub, another modern classic from the horror genre and my first Peter Straub book. Um, it's about four older men who are living in Melbourne in New York. They're, they're, they form a part of this kind of storytelling club um, and they find that something that happened to them when they were much younger has come back to haunt them so it's that kind of yeah past comes back to haunt you story and it's it's called ghost story and it's a ghost story of sorts although not what you might expect excellent writing just very palpable and atmospheric a really clear sense of setting and small town evil which i really adore and has really sophisticated characters so so far so scary i've really enjoyed it it's been nice to, um, yeah, I really rate going back and picking up books that everyone's banged on about forever um, and that you haven't read. Is that your first experience of reading Donna Tartt? It is, yeah. Incredible. So um, wow. I've got, yeah, a couple more books lined up of hers to read because I really enjoyed it. But this is also going to be the year that I've read The Hobbit like twice and I haven't read Lord of the Rings, which is criminal. So I'm going to go back and read Lord of the Rings this year as well. Brilliant. What a task to undertake. I'm very excited. 
so those are our lists of 2023. Always nice to do some reflection and think about the things that we have enjoyed over the course of 12 calendar months. Um, Obviously, we haven't recorded for a very long time, as we said at the start of the episode, and we don't know when we will record again. Um, We think we're going to have a little bit of another hiatus, which feels quite silly to say when we have just come back from a hiatus, but we just need to think about what we're doing, how to continue this podcast. We have been alarmingly, uh, I say alarmingly like it's a bad thing, it's not a bad thing, but I hadn't realised until I actually thought about it until the other day that we have been recording this podcast for seven whole years. That's crazy. I didn't, to be fair, I never expected us to um, to continue for that long because, yeah, but it's it's been great. And I think we want to go and have a think about Um, We both love podcasting. We both definitely, definitely want to do something together going forward. But 2024 might be the year that we mix it up and do something new, perhaps. It would be really nice for us to get back into a a habit of releasing episodes more regularly. So that is something that we are going to go away and think about long and hard. And then we will be back at some point in 2024. Watch this space watch this space but as always we will still be tweeting you can find us over at twi- on twitter i'm never going to call it x everyone just so you know um but our username there is of course at the thirst on on instagram we are at the thirst pod you can always drop us a line as well on the thirst pod at gmail.com to let us know about any of the things we've reviewed today if you've got any glaring emissions from our lists then feel free to tell us in whatever form you feel is appropriate um do please keep your subscriptions to the podcast on apple spotify or wherever you like to listen anything we else we do in the future is just going to end up on that same feed so stay subscribed because we are going to be back um and if you want to leave us a review then please do um we will share some links we'll put i'll put our full lists on our blog and that's the thirstpod.wordpress.com and have a look in the show notes as well because we will put a link there but um thank you for listening thanks very much bye bye Thank <laughs> you.